So we've been sitting and walking and standing and practicing together now for a couple of days. Sometimes it might feel like it's been a little longer than that. And yet as we practice, as we settle in slowly, or maybe we don't feel like we're settling in, but it's happening, whether we imagine or conceive it that way or otherwise, there's a a way in which what we find, what we discover, is we, we come into contact with our life. And not just our life, but what we could perhaps call our aliveness, what it means to be alive, to be a human being. And I'd like to just offer some reflections this evening on what it means to embrace that aliveness. Our human experience, what it is to be a human being, what we are, is very much centers around the sort of the qualities or aspects of our of 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 our experience in which we might notice or how that we might describe as a certain degree of sensitivity we're touched by things and also a capacity to respond to respond or responsivity this way in which we're touched and we respond is something very central to what we are to what our life is all about and it's sort of very much at the centre of what goes on, it seems, because we are impacted, we're impinged upon, we're touched by both the delightful and the difficult in so many different ways, whether here on the retreat or in our lives, elsewhere. And until we start to look or examine carefully what's going on, probably quite understandably, and naturally, what we notice is that most of the time we're engaged, one way or another, in trying to get or to stay comfortable. Doesn't sound like such a bad idea, really, you know, getting comfortable, staying comfortable. Seems reasonable, in fact. In fact, natural, we might imagine. And it's not that there's anything necessarily unnatural about it, but the thing is that it's really difficult. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's really difficult to get comfortable and to stay comfortable. In fact, it might even start to occur to us that it could be impossible to get into a condition that stays comfortable. And whether or not we actually imagine it's possible or otherwise, there's no doubt if we start to look and see, it's hard work sustaining the activity of trying to be, to stay comfortable in the midst of conditions and circumstances that aren't in our control. And if we just look at the, you know, the, the basic nature of, of what we experience, we see we have this body that's incredibly sensitive. It feels things, it's touched by things. And you know, we could just reflect on how sensitive just t- if we just take one of the many different things we're subject to, temperature. I mean, temperature, we know, you know, it's kind of nice to be warm and not so nice to be cold. We kind of have a sense of that. We don't make too much of it. You know, if you think about the range of temperature that we're comfortable at, something like probably from about 16, 17 degrees to 24, 25 degrees centigrade. Celsius. That's kind of relatively comfortable for most of us. If it gets much below the one or above the other, we start to get uncomfortable. And of course, you know, the range of temperature that's possible for us is, of course, something like minus 272 at the bottom end and plus umpteen thousand thousand or tens of thousands in terms of the temperature that um, would be um, experienced if we were in the core of a of a sun, a star. We see that's quite a wide range in which there's a really small little segment in here that we're comfortable at. And of course, we're kind of fortunate to have turned up on a planet in a location where it seems that's approximately something we can manage. But, you know, we're even more sensitive than that 
because at the inside, at the core of us, we need to keep it pretty close to was it 36.7 degrees or something like that. And if it gets about a degree either side of that, it's really unpleasant. We feel quite ill. If we get two or three degrees either side of that, we actually start to be in danger of our life. It's really, and it's just like, it's just how it is. Well, I mean, I don't imagine it's news to you, but if we just reflect on it, we say, oh, gosh, it's a really very sensitive system. It's not comfortable in a very wide range, given what's possible. So trying to keep it comfortable, that could be hard work here. It could be hard work. And I was having that experience myself a little earlier, sitting, reflecting on what to speak about, noticing my hands were getting really cold, and I was starting to think it's really cold, and is the heating working, and all the heating hadn't come on in the teacher wing, and we, I was pleased to see it had come on in the rest of the house, so we, I was glad that everyone else wasn't going to be as cold as I was just then, but it was just interesting noticing that, sort of, oh, don't like it, can we fix this? Which, of course, it's reasonable, it's fine to do something, you know. We got some electric heaters and we opened the door to let some heat from the rest of the house into the wing. And, that, and yet, this process of trying to get comfortable, we see not just our body trying to be comfortable, but our psyche, our sort of our emotional, mental, feeling sense, that's also pretty sensitive. So many people refer to, and you know, quite understandably, feeling a little anxious before coming to the group meetings or feeling anxious in the group meetings. It's like, it's a bit tricky, it's a bit dangerous, it's a bit confusing or unclear how to do that and not get into some place that's a bit threatening in some way or form. We'll be so sensitive to how we appear, how we're perceived, and it's natural that that would be so. It makes sense that that would be so for, for so long for the vast, vast, vast proportion of our human history. We were so dependent on getting on well with everybody in our tribe, not being rejected or excluded by our little community because a human being on their own was basically, well, food for something else basically, up until relatively recently in our history. So it makes sense that we're worried about, you know, not upsetting our peop- the people around us, being approved of, being accepted. And yet, of course, we see how limiting that is, how painful that is. But again, and this, this thing of just the sensitivity without judging it or sort of criticising the fact that we're just seeing, oh yeah, some real sensitivity we have. And you can imagine what it would be like, you know, if you go outside and you see a note in capital letters, please come to meet me, signed, you know, Jung, the teacher. Probably quite a few years ago, oops, gosh, am I in trouble? Have I done something wrong? What's going to happen? You know, we might feel some anxiety, some fear. It doesn't take much to push our buttons for most of us, quite a lot of the time anyway. There's a, there's a lovely story uh, regarding a... Uh, a samurai warrior in medieval Japan who was walking down a dusty road one day. And as he was walking along, he encountered a... He, he was contemplating, thinking about deep questions. He was very much had a sense of his life as a path of spiritual warriorship and he was thinking about important things. And then he came across a, a monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road at an at a intersection just sitting there in dusty robes. And um, he came up to the monk and he, he looked down at him, this really l- quite large samurai, and he says, Oh, monk, you are a holy man. Perhaps you can answer my question. The monk looked up at him. He said, and the samurai says, Can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And the monk looked up and he said, Samurai, Your robes are tatty. Your sword is rusty. Samurai, you are not taking care of yourself in accordance with your noble order. And Samurai, you smell bad. 
Why should I talk to you? And the samurai, this proud warrior, he's enraged. This, this little monk sitting there insulting him. He pulls out a sword. I'm going to teach you a lesson, he says. And the monk looks up at him and says, that's hell. And suddenly the samurai realizes what's happened. He's like, oh my gosh, this little guy sitting here has risked his life, actually, literally, to give me a really important teaching on the nature of hell. To be enraged to the point I could kill someone for a few words that he spoke. Wow. And in that incredible sense of appreciation and gratitude and just love for this little monk that he felt just flooding through his heart and he's smiling, beaming down at the monk in realisation of what's happened. The monk looks up and says, that's heaven. And it's quite a lovely story in a certain way. Um, I'm not sure it actually ever happened exactly like that, but it might have. But again, it just points to just to me how sensitive we are, how easily we are impacted by both what might be perceived insult, but equally by a kindness or an expression of generosity in some way or form. And so... A significant element of what we're learning, what we're exploring here, is how to handle, how to meet, how to hold this experience of being so sensitive, of being impactable. When we're really young, we don't really have any capacity or skill or ability to handle and hold the intensity of what we sometimes encounter. And we can easily be overwhelmed by it. And when we're really little, overwhelm, it's like, in a way, it's like annihilation. It's like our whole sort of, in a way, sort of functional circuitry just fuses or, or fries in some way so that we just can't deal with what's going on. And the experience of that, which pretty much everyone has when they're little, in some way or another, it doesn't mean that we had a particularly bad or difficult experience or sort of unfortunate upbringing. It may be just part of the normal things that happen in our lives. And for most it simply is that. We, we carry with us a sort of an imprint of the fear of being overwhelmed and therefore annihilated, that we associate with our sensitivity, with being touched, with being impacted and not being able to handle. And when we're an infant, we can't handle it. We actually need the help of our parent or person who's providing us that parenting support. We need that to be able to handle what's going on. That's part of the nature of what it is to be an infant. As an adult, we have a much greater capacity than that, but we don't necessarily know and trust that fully. And so, a lot of what goes on for us in our life is an attempt, born of fear, born of anxiety, to avoid that which is difficult or painful or uncomfortable. Because at some level, we experience it as if it's a survival matter. It's like... I need to not be impacted because it will overwhelm me and that will be the end, annihilation. And we might ask ourselves, we might usefully reflect or consider how much of my life, how much of my action, my effort in life has been an attempt to avoid what I fear. To get away from that which I find uncomfortable or to avoid it. How much of our life have we spent in that way? And how successful have we been at avoiding that which we find scary or difficult? That's not to say, of course, that there isn't some intelligence and actually caution in regard to actual danger when there's a threat. Yes, absolutely. But so much of what we fear isn't actually present as a threat. It's much more the anticipation of what might be if. And, you know, we might notice that 
It's a bit colder out there than it was yesterday, or a bit damper at times. We think, oh, I'm not sure I want to go out there. You know, it might rain. What if I got wet? And we just kind of, mm, I don't. I think I'll go and curl up in a comfortable chair with a hot cuppa and hope it all goes away. You know, that sort of thing we might notice sometimes happening, perhaps. And if we just unpack a little bit what's going, why is it that we respond that way to the prospect of being cold or wet? Oh, actually it's because at some level we've learned, we've been trained, we've possibly been taught very carefully, don't get wet because you'll get cold and then you'll get hypothermia and then you'll die. When you're a little child and we don't know any better, that's probably a reasonably good thing to work on. But as an adult, there's a long way between getting wet and even beginning to feel cool and actually getting hypothermia. Now, useful to know that that's nonetheless something to take care of in certain situations, but it's probably not something we're too greatly at risk of doing walking meditation on the lawn at Guy House. And if we start to feel uncomfortably cold, then of course we can come in, warm up, have a hot drink. But often we're not even willing to go to the place where we just start to feel a little uncomfortable. We just habitually, unconsciously move towards comfort wherever we can. And yet that process of trying to get comfortable just never comes to an end. We never get to the place where we can stop and say, ha, it's okay here. So when we encounter fear, that sense of pulling away, withdrawing, shrinking that's associated with it, really useful to notice that Oh, it's an experience happening right here. Fear is always happening right here. It's an experience. It's physiological. It's involving our 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 sort of our body's various systems, the nervous system, the um, the uh, I've just forgotten the word. Would you believe it? The the system that describes all the the glands and organs that produce chemicals, the endocrine system, that um, the nervous system and the endocrine system that that kind of operate a lot of our feeling life basically and our inner condition is very much um, influenced by and we see that they get impacted they get affected when fear arises but it's all happening right here it's often really uncomfortable but what tends to happen is we don't tune into that what we notice is the thought that creates the story that moves into the future about what's going to happen if I think I might have used the example in responding to a question yesterday about, you know, so we start to feel some pain, we start to wonder, what if it gets worse? And then we somehow are imagining, you know, that an ambulance arrives at Guy House and we're being taken to the hospital and the amputation and the wheelchair and the, you know, the the horror story. Um, And it was actually the mind that moved in fear. Nothing was actually happening that was dangerous. And maybe we needed to adjust our posture. Sure, that's allowed. If we can turn our attention to the immediate experience, something else is possible for us. To see, oh, fear, and it's, it's almost like to remember this, fear tells, us, tells me a story about the future. But it's an experience happening in the present. An unpleasant experience, but in and of itself not a dangerous one. Fear is not dangerous to us, unless we get lost in it. And as Mark Twain apparently once observed, he said, you know, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. That sense of the, you know, how bad it is when we're anticipating the worst It doesn't need to happen because that lost in that fear is actually pretty much as bad as it gets, it seems. That's not to say we don't encounter difficult things. Absolutely. And that it's not appropriate and in fact wise and compassionate for us to address so far as we can taking care and protecting ourselves. When I was um, a teenager and rather... Oh, I guess uh, you'd have to say foolishly now, with a sort of somewhat adult maturity, looking back, my friends and I uh, in uh, the 
growing up in the country and countryside in New Zealand, not a lot of entertainment. So one occasion we were sort of playing this game with motorcycles on a farm where, you know, two people riding the motorcycles and all the rest of us were standing there and seeing who would move first. You know, like, will we get out of the way or will they swerve? And on one occasion, uh, as we were playing this game, I decided to step to the left at the same time as the motorbike swerved in the same direction. And bang! Both myself and the motorbike suffered a certain amount of damage. I remember feeling kind of proud about the amount I inflicted on the bike. Um, and I still got the scars of what it inflicted on me. Um, but ever since that day and for the rest of my life, if I ever hear a motorcycle coming towards me, my whole system goes, ah! And if I'm standing in the middle of the road and I hear a motorcycle coming towards me, it's probably a good idea to get off the road. But if I'm standing in the middle of the footpath or in a building and I hear a motorcycle, actually I'm not in danger. It's like, oh, just notice there's the system responding as if you're in danger and you're not. And I imagine it will do it for the rest of my life. But it's not a problem in itself because I realise, oh, this is fear. The charge is strong. It's quite intense sometimes. But in itself, oh, it's fear. So when fear arises, to turn towards the experience to say, oh, okay, can I give it space? Sometimes we notice we tighten, we contract. And the very contractedness is actually part of the suffering in the fear. We can start to soften, we can start to widen, we can breathe. Oh, okay. Suddenly we maybe notice that what happens with fear is that we tend to withdraw from the object of the fear, the thing we are afraid of, the thing that seems to be threatening to me, to try and avoid it. And yet, as we withdraw from something that seems threatening because of the fear, of course, we withdraw with the fear inside us intact, unattended to, and it soon finds something else to turn towards. If we keep moving like that, eventually we find the fear comes towards our own inner experience. We can't get away from that. We can't get away from that unless we completely disconnect and distract ourselves. And that's actually the condition that quite a significant proportion of our world is operating, is living in a sense of fear of the actual inner experience and no ability to really get away from it. So desperately then attempting to fix or control that. But the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller if we keep moving away from that which we find uncomfortable or threatening. Does that make sense? How sense we kind of just step back and you know and then all the things that are threatening are out there, they're somehow bad, they're somehow different, they're somehow other. And over here gets small and tight and narrow. And if we can open to it, if we start to see that we can't avoid being impacted, it's not possible to live in this world without being touched. And sometimes the touch will be tender or uncomfortable not easy for us, but to see that, oh, we actually have a capacity to open, to be conscious in our response, to choose to soften, to open, to allow. Oh, what happens? What happens there? I was recently uh, leading a day of uh, meditative walking in Northumberland with uh, some friends and uh, other practitioners, and one of the interesting, interesting things at one point, for some, it involved getting wet feet, because... It was muddy and boggy in places where we were walking. And there's that sense of, and I know it well myself, of trying to avoid getting wet feet. I really like, oh, should we go home? Should we avoid it? Should we not go there? Then at a certain point, you have to get your feet wet. And it's like, oh, afterwards you're like, oh, that shit's all right. You know, they're not that cold. They're fine here. Keep walking. Hopefully got some woolen socks and, you know. Suddenly the world is a larger place when you can walk through a puddle, get wet, and it's all right. Because you know at the end of the day you can go home and change your socks. But the amount of restriction we can expose it or we can experience around not wanting to get into that condition. And I'm always surprised how I have to learn it again. Okay, I tried to keep my feet wet. I tried to keep, sorry, keep my feet dry. But once they get wet, it's like, ah, oh, 
Actually, it's much happier after that. You'd have to worry about going around all those puddles. I'm actually happier once my feet are wet. But try telling that to me while they're still dry and I won't believe you. So what we see together with those experiences that we regard as, um, or that we find it fearful, we regard as unwanted, unpleasant, that we feel to be painful, it's not just the experience that we are threatened by or impacted by that might be in this case, you know, cold. You might think I've got something about being cold. You're right, I do, I don't like it. Um, See, it's come into the conversation a few times. And I've also got an itchy nose, so I don't like that either. I notice myself itching it. Um... And we do these things, of course. That's how it is. But what happens when we're not aware of the process is that it's not just unpleasant, but we actually start to kind of close down. We start to shut down our sensitivity to try and protect ourselves from feeling what's going on. We start to withdraw our attention from the very sensitivity and aliveness that is our contact with life. It's the interface with our existence. It's what tells us we're alive and we start to pull away from it. We start to distrust it. And it's like we create a sort of a protective armoring or hardening or density around us where we're we're not inhabiting. And yet we're kind of trapped inside it, distant or disconnected from life. And then we add to that so often, so easily, somehow a sense that it's my fault. That it shouldn't be this way. If I'd done it right, it wouldn't have happened this way. Uh, I must be to blame. We somehow take personal responsibility for both the difficulties of our life and for the patterns of reactivity that then separate and disconnect us from life. So one of the things that happens that's really important in the small groups, and a number of you commented on it today, we actually hear each other speaking and we think, oh, oh my gosh. Actually, although the other person's experience may be quite different, or maybe sometimes it's similar, but whether or not we have the same experience, the patterns and the tendencies of our reactions, oh, we're all kind of very similar in those terms. This is a shared phenomenon. It's not just me or you that this occurs to. It happens to all of us. And when we imagine it's just happening to me or it's all about me or it's somehow caused by me, it has the effect of creating a sense of distance, disconnection and separation that's profoundly isolating and painful in that isolation. That's perhaps some of the deepest suffering we experience. And when we share it, when we hear others talking about their own challenges, struggles and journeys, we realize, oh, this is actually something that connects us. It's not something that separates us. It connects us. Although we live in a culture in which we don't really have many forms or frameworks for sharing in a skillful and an empathetic way the challenges of our lives. We tend to see them and relate to them as problems that shouldn't be there and therefore somehow mistakes or aberrations. Something we should be ashamed of or cover up or keep hidden and don't tell people about. And there's a real cost when we live that way. So there's a something beautiful in the courage to just speak of, well, yeah, my body hurts or my heart aches or my mind is crazy. <laughs> and I've got to live with it for hours every day. And just say, yeah, and see that other people, oh yeah, your body too, your heart too, your mind too. Oh my gosh, human beings, we're like that. And this is something the Buddha spoke of, invited us to reflect upon, to consider, to think about. You know, he talked about this human body, subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death. It's kind of like, oh gosh, you know, it sounds tough, doesn't it? Birth, aging, sickness, death. And yet, of course, we know that's what we go through. We just don't like to think about it too much. And I used to wonder, you know, when I first encountered that teaching, I thought, the classic translation, birth, aging, sickness, death. Well, that's the wrong way around. I got sick long before I ever got into aging. And the Buddha's a pretty smart guy. He seems to do things in a pretty organized way, as far as I can tell. So I wondered about that. And then 
I thought, oh yeah, it's that kind of sickness that doesn't get better. So we can be sick and get better. That's one thing. But there's aging and then there's the sickness of the, the body starting to go downhill, as I maybe mentioned a little yesterday. That kind of loss of capacity, functionality. And I encountered a, another word, another translation, which is, of course, uh, feels to me, it's, it's, gets it exactly. It's birth, aging, decay, and death. We say decay, it's like, oh, gosh, this body, it's decaying. And it's true. I mean, my teeth have been doing it for years, but other things, my ability has decayed. I can't do some of the things I used to. And feel what that is to be a human being with a body subject to this. Wow. That's quite something. And then the Buddha spoke about how we, what we experience in the heart. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. It's like, oh, ouch. Did anyone recognize any of those? Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. And we kind of think, hmm, they didn't say that on the retreat description. No, they didn't say, come along, experience sorrow, pain, grief, lament. You know, the hall would be empty. It would be the end of the waiting lists, wouldn't it? could solve the problem easily. And yet, we recognize that this is part of our shared experience. It's not the totality of it, but it's part of our shared experience. And the Buddha also spoke about our sort of our mental experience, our minds, the, the experience of being uh, associated with what we don't like, separated from what we like, the experience of not getting what we want. It's annoying, isn't it, when you don't get what you want? It's like, it happens to us all. And we might think, well, but surely I can just organise it so that it wouldn't happen that way. Surely that's possible, isn't it? I wouldn't hold it you know, if I knew how to do that, I wouldn't keep it a secret. But the reality is we can't avoid this. And if you're still unconvinced, not that I'm trying to talk you into anything, but for me there's a way I can reflect on it that really helps me see we can't avoid suffering. We can't avoid that which is difficult and painful. And it goes like this. If you love something in this life, Someone, something, if you deeply care, love something or someone, at some point you'll be parted from that through accident, through choice or through ultimately death. And the parting, the separation from something or someone we love will be painful, will be ouch, be tender, grievous. And if you don't love something or someone in this life, that will be painful. That will be tender. That will hurt deeply. I don't see a third option. I've often asked people. I don't know if anyone's come up, might come up with one, but we do love, we will lose. We don't love, the loss is right there. The pain is right there. And that says to me, oh, okay. So it can't be that the point of this existence is to avoid that because it would be hopeless, pointless, undoable. And that means we need to forgive ourselves. We need to forgive others. We need to forgive this life for the fact that suffering happens. So quickly, so easily we blame ourselves. Sometimes we blame another. I touched on that yesterday but actually what it means to forgive ourselves. It's not because we did it wrong. It's not because somehow we failed or messed up. It's because this is the nature of things. We all encounter that which is difficult, painful, scary. And this is the process through which we learn, through which we open, through which we wake up. Khalil Gibran in the Prophet, he, he writes, he says, 
I know what he says, it's in there somewhere. Normally I just get to that point and it comes. But it's not coming right now. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of the fruit must stand, must break so that its heart can stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. That sense of, oh, are we willing to touch those places that are tender, that are not easy for us? Because there's something of learning, something of discovery that comes through that. Something of exposing, allowing our heart to be released from the from the hardness, from the density, from the sort of the barriers, the boundarying, the armoring, the solidification that we develop unconsciously around it. When we start to see that we're sensitive, vulnerable human beings, perhaps we find our heart more easily coming with a sense of kindliness, of friendliness to those places. The process of coming back again and again into contact with what's happening, feeling at times it may be discomfort or distress. At times it may be ease. At times it may be something in between. Neither comfortable nor uncomfortable. But whatever the experience is, wherever we find ourselves, the process of again and again coming into contact, being willing to feel, being willing to be touched, doesn't mean we always have to like it. But being willing to show up and be here and be awake in the sensitivity of our life that kindly attention, that willingness, it's like moisture that that's brought to bear, that begins to slowly soak into, to soften and dissolve the hardness and the aridity of our inner world, our inner life, which we experience as dry and unfulfilling when we don't inhabit it fully. And we un attribute that dryness, that lack of fulfillment to the difficulties or the lack of certain things in our life. But it's actually not that. It's to do with how fully we inhabit our heart, our life. And the, the sense of separateness that is created by that, that leaves us feeling isolated within. Some barrier, some boundary, some difference, some distance from life from others, from what is around us. Because we're not actually inhabiting our, the interface, the sensitivity that interfaces with everything around us that is so sensitive, so porous, in fact, that we, at times when we're fully in it, might hesitate to distinguish ourselves from what's around us. If we even just, you know, with the breathing, we notice, oh gosh, you know, there's air that comes into my lungs and into the very cells of my body. It was released from the leaves of trees and grasses not so long before. Some of it has actually spent a bit of time in the lungs of my neighbor before being breathed out and breathed in by me. And we were like, huh, we're actually more porous than we imagine. But if we withdraw from our sensitivity, we lose that sense of connection precisely because it's through that sensitivity we know the connection directly. And so when things are uncomfortable, we need to pay attention to what's going on, to look and see, do I need to do something? Sometimes I do. You know, Sometimes knee is really painful, really hurting. And it's important, it's right, to stretch the leg out and say, okay, I'm going to take a break here. Just wobble it round. You know? Don't, don't take your cue from the Buddha. You know? He can sit there for hours without moving. It's a block of brass or bronze or whatever. It's not going to move. I doubt there's a lot of knee pain experienced up there. But the human being, the Buddha, yeah, there's stories where he... 
I remember one where he, he, he says, you know, he's, he's a little older in his years, I think, and at one point he's giving some teaching, and then he says to his attendant and sort of, you could say, right-hand man or sort of good friend, Ananda, he says, Ananda, these, these practitioners, they are very alert and awake, but and they want to hear teaching, but I'm tired and my back hurts. He says, I'm going to lie down. You give them some Dharma teaching. And it's like, how lovely. Just how human. To be able to respond like, oh, I'm the Buddha, I'm stoic, I can sit through. Probably he could have, but he didn't choose to. Because he realized actually maybe this is an important teaching to give them as well. It's not just optional or a good idea. It's actually imperative for us. A story I often share is uh, something that happened to me when I was teaching in America some years ago and uh, going for a walk in the woods near the retreat center Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And as I was walking down the path to the, 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 the nearby pond, suddenly in front of me, a few, few, few paces ahead, I saw and I stopped it because it was this great large snake across the path. And I froze. I come from New Zealand. We have no snakes in New Zealand. And I was at once terrified, well, very scared, because it was large. And I was also fascinated. I was like, wow, wild animal in the woods. You know? And I stopped, dead still. (coughs) And I saw it hadn't moved, so I got a little courageous and came a little closer. Got a little closer. And all these stories in my head, you know, there's a lot of stories in the Buddha's teachings about the mistake you make if you confuse a rope with a snake and you end up feeling a bit silly. Or even worse, if you confuse a snake with a rope. You go to pick it up and it bites you. You know, there's a lot of parables about snakes. Um, and as I got close, I took another step and I realized, oh, it's not actually a snake, but it sort of is because it's a snake's skin. And it was the, the, the skin of a snake sitting on the track, on the path. It's the same shape and size as a snake crossing. And it, of course, wasn't moving because the snake wasn't inside it. But I started thinking and reflecting, you know. So what's that like for a being of the nature of a snake that has to get out of its skin? It's not just its skin, that's its armour, that's its protection. And we, we know, I imagine, you know, if we reflect on it, oh, actually, yeah, a snake has to shed its skin in order to grow. If it doesn't, it dies. Because the snake is protected by, but also constricted by its skin. It's shield, it's armoring. And as it tries to grow, if it can't get out of the skin, it will die. But to get out of it, it can't come out with another one on, another hard, firm, shiny, scaly skin, because that couldn't be any bigger than the one it left if it came out from the inside. So it's got to come out kind of soft, kind of juicy, maybe vulnerable. Wouldn't really want to meet an eagle in that condition, I should think. And it's like, gosh... In order to survive, every year it has to come out of that into this much more vulnerable condition. In order to survive. And we too, I think, have to make this journey into those places of hardness or maybe sometimes numbness, which we don't feel or don't want to feel, with the kind attention that we learn to bring to our bodies, to our hearts, to our lives, there's a, there's a softening, there's a moisturizing, there's a, a lubricating and a re-inhabiting of the sensitivity that when we pay attention to what's happening rather than withdraw from it, we can see the places where we need to do something and make a response. And equally we can recognize in some places what I need to do is attend to my urge to withdraw. And that's what's needed here. 
not withdrawing, but actually attending to the urge, the contraction, the tightening. And just practicing releasing, breathing out, letting it soften and drop away. And the sense of noticing that contraction, we get a sense of um, tightening and hardening. Tightening and hardening. And as we soften and widen, we start to come into a different condition of our experience, a different condition of our life. We start to trust that we can actually meet this life. We can actually meet these experiences. We are no longer the infant consciousness that could not handle the experience coming towards us. And in probably the vast majority of instances, we can. And there are times when sometimes, even as an adult, it may be overwhelming for us sometimes, and then maybe we need to seek some support with that. And we maybe need to learn how to skillfully handle without getting too close to or going entirely into, but at the same time not needing to run away from. So we actually have some ability to make choices, to balance, to say, okay, this is as close as okay, but I don't need to turn away. So there's a difference between stepping back from something, saying actually that's a bit much right now, or I'm not sure if it's okay, but stepping back from it and we're still facing it. We might need to take two steps back. That's all right. But we stay facing it. When we're lost in the reaction, we turn away from it. And then we don't know. We just pull away. We can't actually gauge in that condition how much space we need. And we might start to see then that the real danger and the deeper suffering is in the the process of becoming disconnected from or exiled from the home ground, from our inner territory of, of our life, of what it is to be present in the aliveness, in the sensitivity, in our capacity to respond to what's here, rather than just to react to it, conditioned by patternings born of our history. Allowing experience to touch us, to embrace, to open to this. It's like to keep the heart open. Because actually, the heart is always open. We're always touched. No matter how much armoring we have, it doesn't stop us being impacted. And it's almost like we learn to open the back door too. So what comes in can pass through. And we're touched by it. But we're not bound by it. We're not limited by it. As we learn what this means, and it's a process, it's a journey, it takes time. Again, it takes courage and it takes a willingness to just try again in many different ways. We start to feel that actually we can allow life in because we know we can let it pass through. We don't have to try and resist it, get entangled with it, struggle with it quite so much. There's a, a natural organic fluidity, a dynamic aliveness that we start to sense is actually what's moving here. This life just keeps on pouring through. It just keeps pouring through the space that we're inhabiting, moment after moment, in its delights and its challenges. And there's something okayness, something of an okayness, and a tenderness, and a caringness with which we learn to embrace this. It's like, yeah. Okay, I can I can meet this. I can open to this. And this heart, this life opens wider and wider. Its capacity for opening is vast beyond conceiving how wide this can get. And in that openness, in that widening, 
we can start to feel our co-participation in life and the sense of a opportunity or an invitation to abide in the peace of life when it does not seek to obstruct itself in its natural unfoldment. When we in a certain way learn to step out of the way while at the same time remaining wholeheartedly here but allowing what moves to move. And as we allow what moves to move without identifying with it or taking hold of it or resisting it, we start to sense what doesn't move. We start to recognize what life is moving in and through, which we share with all beings and all things. And it's in this that the heart comes to rest. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all here in our practice together and in our lives, may we find the, the courage to open to that which is not easy to feel, to trust our human sensitivity as a, as a gateway into a deepening openness and communion with life for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.